Book One, Chapter Twenty Three of Robert Falconer by George MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Robert Falconer by George MacDonald. Chapter Twenty Three An Auto de Fe. The morning at length arrived when Robert and Shargar must return to Rothaden. A keen autumnal wind was blowing far-off feathery clouds across a sky of pale blue. The cold freshened the spirits of the boys, and tightened their nerves and muscles till they were like bowstrings. No doubt the winter was coming, but the sun, although his day's work was short and slack, was still as clear as ever. So gladsome was the world that the boys received the day as a fresh holiday, and strenuously forgot tomorrow. The wind blew straight from Rothaden, and between sun and wind a bright thought awoke in Robert. The dragon should not be carried. He should fly home. After they had said farewell, in which Shargar seemed to suffer more than Robert, and had turned the corner of the stables, they heard the good farmer shouting after them, There'll be another harsh, nasty year, boys, which wonderfully restored their spirits. When they reached the open road, Robert laid his violin carefully into a broom-bush. Then the tail was unrolled, and the dragon ascended steady as an angel whose work is done. Shargar took the stick at the end of the string, and Robert resumed his violin. But the creature was hard to lead in such a wind, so they made a loop on the string and passed it round Shargar's chest, and he tugged the dragon home. Robert longed to take his share in the struggle, but he could not trust his violin to Shargar, and so had to walk beside ingloriously. On the way they laid their plans for the accommodation of the dragon. But the violin was the greater difficulty. Robert would not hear of the factory, for reasons best known to himself, and there were serious objections to taking it to Duel Sanny. It was resolved that the only way was to seize the right moment and creep upstairs with it, before presenting themselves to Mrs. Falconer. Their intended manoeuvres with the kite would favour the concealment of this stroke. Before they entered the town they drew in the kite a little way and cut off a dozen yards of the string, which Robert put in his pocket with a stone tied to the end. When they reached the house, Shargar went into the little garden and tied the string of the kite to the paling between that and Captain Forsyth's. Robert opened the street door, and having turned his head on all sides like a thief, darted with his violin up the stairs. Having laid his treasure in one of the presses in Shargar's garret, he went to his own, and from the skylight threw the stone down into the captain's garden, fastening the other end of the string to the bedstead. Escaping as cautiously as he had entered, he passed hurriedly into the neighbor's garden, found the stone, and joined Shargar. The ends were soon united, and the kite let go. It sunk for a moment, then, arrested by the bedstead, towered again to its former pride of place, sailing over Rothaden, grand and unconcerned, in the wastes of air. But the end of its tether was in Robert's garret, and that was to him a sense of power, a thought of glad mystery. There was henceforth, while the dragon flew, a relation between the desolate little chamber in that lowly house buried among so many more aspiring abodes, and the unmeasured depths and spaces, the stars, and the unknown heavens. And in the next chamber lay the fiddle, free once more, yet another tragical power whereby his spirit could forsake the earth and mount heavenwards. 
All that night, all the next day, all the next night, the dragon flew. Not one smile broke over the face of the old lady as she received them. Was it because she did not know what acts of disobedience, what breaches of the moral law the two children of possible perdition might have committed while they were beyond her care, and she must not run the risk of smiling upon iniquity? I think it was rather that there was no smile in her religion, which, while it developed the power of a darkened conscience, overlaid and half-smothered all the lovelier impulses of her grand nature. How could she smile? Did not the world lie under the wrath and curse of God? Was not her own son in hell forever? Had not the blood of the Son of God been shed for him in vain? Had not God meant that it should be in vain? For by the gift of his Spirit could he not have enabled him to accept the offered pardon? And for anything she knew was not Robert going after him, to the place of misery. How could she smile? No, be quiet, she said, the moment she had shaken hands with them, with her cold hands, so clean and soft and smooth. With the volcanic heart of love, her outside was always so still and cold. Snow on the mountainsides, hot, vein-covering lava within. For her highest duty was submission to the will of God. Ah, if she had only known the God who claimed her submission. But there is time enough for every heart to know him. No, be quiet, she repeated, and sit down and tell me about the folk at Bodyfall. I hope ye thanked them, or ye left, for their muckle kindness to ye. The boys were silent. Did not ye thank them? No, Granny, I did not think that we did. Well, that was ill fart of ye. Eh, but the heart is deceitful aboon the thing, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Come away, come away. Robert, fastened the door. And she led them to the corner for prayer, and poured forth a confession of sin for them and for herself, such as left little that could have been added by her own profligate son, had he joined in the prayer. Either there are no degrees in guilt, or the Scotch language was equal only to the confession of children and holy women, and could provide no more awful words for the contrition of the prodigal or the hypocrite. But the words did little harm, for Robert's mind was full of the kite and the violin, and was probably nearer God thereby than if he had been trying to feel as wicked as his grandmother told God that he was. Shargar was even more divinely employed at the time than either, for though he had not had the manners to thank his benefactor, his heart had all the way home been full of tender thoughts of Miss Lammy's kindness, and now, instead of confessing sins that were not his, he was loving her over and over, and wishing to be back with her instead of with this awfully good woman, in whose presence there was no peace, for all the atmosphere of silence and calm in which she sat. Confession over and the boys at liberty again, a new anxiety seized them. Granny must find out that Robert's shoes were missing, and what account was to be given of the misfortune, for Robert would not, or could not, lie. In the midst of their discussion, a bright idea flashed upon Shargar, which, however, he kept to himself. He would steal them, and bring them home in triumph, emulating thus Robert's exploit in delivering his bonny lady. The shoemaker sat behind his door to be out of the drought, Shargar might see a great part of the workshop without being seen, and he could pick Robert's shoes from among a hundred. Probably they lay just where Robert had laid them, 
for Dubal Sandy paid attention to any job only in proportion to the persecution accompanying it. So the next day Shargar contrived to slip out of school just as the writing lesson began, for he had great skill in conveying himself unseen, and, with his book-bag, slunk barefooted into the shoemaker's entry. The shop-door was a little way open, and the red eyes of Shargar had only the corner next it to go, peering about in. But there he saw the shoes. He got down on his hands and knees and crept nearer. Yes, they were beyond a doubt Robert's shoes. He made a long arm like a beast of prey, seized them, and losing his presence of mind upon possession, drew them too hastily towards him. The shoemaker saw them as they vanished through the door and darted after them. Shargar was off at full speed, and Sandy followed with hue and cry. Every idle person in the street joined in the pursuit, and all who were too busy or too responsible to run crowded to doors and windows. Shargar made instinctively for his mother's old lair, but bethinking himself when he reached the door, he turned, and knowing nowhere else to go, fled in terror to Mrs. Falconer's, still, however, holding fast by the shoes, for they were Robert's. As Robert came home from school, wondering what could have become of his companion, he saw a crowd about his grandmother's door, and pushing his way through it in some dismay, found Dubal Sanny and Shargar confronting each other before the stern justice of Mrs. Falconer. "'You're a leer,' the shoemaker was panting out. "'I had not had a pair of shoon or Roberts in my hands this three months. "'They shoon. Let me see them. There. Here's Robert himself. "'Are they shoon yours, new Robert?' "'Ay, are they. Ye made them yourself.' "'Who came they in my shop, then?' "'Spare name more questions, nor is worth answering,' said Robert, "'with a look meant to be significant. "'They're my shoon, and I'll keep them.' Ablins, ye did not I ken what shoon ye have, or what they came into ye. What for did not Shargar come and spare after them, then, in place of making a thief of himself that gate? Ye may hold your tongue, returned Robert, with yet more significance. I was I an idiot, said Shargar, in apologetic reflection, looking awfully white, and afraid to lift an eye to Mrs. Falconer, yet reassured a little by Robert's presence. Some glimmering seemed now to have dawned upon the shoemaker, for he began to prepare a retreat. Meantime, Mrs. Falconer sat silent, allowing no word that passed to escape her. She wanted to be at the bottom of the mysterious affair, and therefore held her peace. "'Weel, I'm sure, Robert, you never tellt me aboot the shoon,' said Alexander. "'I'll just take them back with me and do what's wanted to them. And I'm sorry that I have given ye this trouble, Mistress Falconer.' But it was all that fool's white there. I did not even ken it was him till we were near hand the hoose. Let me see the shoon, said Mrs. Falconer, speaking almost for the first time. What's the matter with them? Examining the shoes, she saw they were in a perfectly sound state, and this confirmed her suspicion that there was more in the affair than had yet come out. Had she taken the straightforward measure of examining Robert, she would soon have arrived at the truth. But she had such a dread of causing a lie to be told, that she would adopt any roundabout way, rather than ask a plain question of a suspected culprit. So she laid the shoes down beside her, saying to the shoemaker, There's nothing amiss with the shoon. You can leave them. 
Thereupon Alexander went away, and Robert and Shargar would have given more than their dinner to follow him. Granny neither asked any questions, however, nor made a single remark on what had passed. Dinner was served and eaten, and the boys returned to their afternoon school. No sooner was she certain that they were safe under the schoolmaster's eye than the old lady put on her black silk bonnet and her black woolen shawl, took her green cotton umbrella, which served her for a staff, and refusing Betty's proffered assistance, set out for Dual Sanny's shop. As she drew near, she heard the sound of his violin. When she entered, he laid his old wife carefully aside and stood in an expectant attitude. Mr. Elshender, I want to be at the bottom of this, said Mrs. Falconer. Well, ma'am, gone to the bottom of it, returned Dougal Sanny, dropping on his stool and taking his stone upon his lap and stroking it as if it had been some quadrupedal pet. Full of rough but real politeness to women when in good humour, he lost all his manners along with his temper upon the slightest provocation, and her tone irritated him. Who came Robert Shoon to be in your shop? Somebody bud till have brought them, ma'am. In all my experience, and that's no small, I never can't pair of shoon go on on a pair of feet in the wane of them. Oh, it's what kind of gates that to spake to the body. Whose feet was inside the shoon? Devil a bit I'm kens, ma'am. Do not swear whatever ye do. Devil, but I will swear, ma'am, and given ye anger me, I'll just swear awful. I'm sure I have nae wuss to anger ye, man. Cannot ye help a body to win at the bottom of a thing, unangered and sworn? Will, I cannot what brought the shoon, as I tell ye already. But they wanted nae mendin'. I might have meant them and forgotten it, ma'am. No, ye're lean. Can you go on at that gate, ma'am, I will not spake a word of trouth from this moment for it. Just tell me what ye can about the shoon, and I'll no say another word. Well, ma'am, I'll tell ye the trouth. The devil brought them in on day in long tains, and says he, I'll shender, man, thy shoon for poor Robbie Faulkner, and double sold them for the life of ye, for that old lucky minnie of his ill soon have him doon our gate and the ground is hot in the new, and I did not want to be o'er sore upon him, for he's a fine shield, and I'll make a fine fiddler given he live long enough. Mrs. Falconer left the shop without another word, but with an awful suspicion which the last heedless words of the shoemaker had aroused in her bosom. She left him bursting with laughter over his lapstone. He caught up his fiddle and played the devils in the women, lustily and with expression but he little thought what he had done. As soon as she reached her own room, she went straight to her bed and disinterred the bonny lady's coffin. She was gone, and in her stead, horror of horrors, lay in the unhallowed chest that body of divinity known as Boston's fourfold state. Vexation, anger, disappointment, and grief possessed themselves of the old woman's mind. She ranged the house like the questing beast of the round table, but failed in finding the violin before the return of the boys. Not a word did she say all that evening, and their oppressed hearts foreboded ill. They felt that there was thunder in the clouds, a sleeping storm in the air, but how or when it would break they had no idea. 
Robert came home to dinner the next day a few minutes before Shargar. As he entered his grandmother's parlour, a strange odour greeted his sense. A moment more and he stood rooted with horror, and his hair began to rise on his head. His violin lay on its back on the fire, and a yellow tongue of flame was licking the red lips of a hole in its belly. All its strings were shriveled up save one, which burst as he gazed, and besides, stern as a druidess, sat his grandmother in her chair, feeding her eyes with grim satisfaction on the detestable sacrifice. At length the rigidity of Robert's whole being relaxed in an involuntary howl like that of a wild beast, and he turned and rushed from the house in a helpless agony of horror. Where he was going he knew not, only a blind instinct of modesty drove him to hide his passion from the eyes of men. From her window Miss St. John saw him tearing like one demented along the top walk of the captain's garden, and watched for his return. He came far sooner than she expected. Before he arrived at the factory Robert began to hear strange sounds in the desolate place. When he reached the upper floor he found men with axe and hammer destroying the old woodwork, breaking the old jennies, pitching the balls of lead into baskets, and throwing the spools into crates. Was there nothing but destruction in the world? There, most horrible, his bonny leddy dying of flames, and here the temple of his refuge torn to pieces by unhallowed hands. What could it mean? Was his grandmother's vengeance here too? But he did not care. He only felt like the dove sent from the ark that there was no rest for the sole of his foot that there was no place to hide his head in his agony that he was naked to the universe and like a heartless wild thing hunted till its brain is of no more use he turned and rushed back again upon his track at one end was the burning idol at the other the desecrated temple no sooner had he entered the captain's garden than miss st john met him what is the matter with you, Robert? she asked kindly. Oh, ma'am, gasped Robert, and burst into a very storm of weeping. It was long before he could speak. He cowered before Miss St. John as if conscious of an unfriendly presence, and seeking to shelter himself by her tall figure from his grandmother's eyes. For who could tell but at the moment she might be gazing upon him from some window, or even from the blue vault above? There was no escaping her. She was the all-seeing eye personified, the eye of the god of the theologians of his country, always searching out the evil and refusing to acknowledge the good. Yet so gentle and faithful was the heart of Robert that he never thought of her as cruel. He took it for granted that somehow or other she must be right, only what a terrible thing such righteousness was. He stood and wept before the lady. Her heart was sore for the despairing boy. She drew him to a little summer seat. He entered with her and sat down, weeping still. She did her best to soothe him. At last, sorely interrupted by sobs, he managed to let her know the fate of his bonny lady. But when he came to the words, She's burning in there upon Granny's fire, he broke out once more with that wild howl of despair, and then, ashamed of himself, ceased weeping altogether, though he could not help the intrusion of certain chokes and sobs upon his otherwise even, though low and sad speech. Knowing nothing of Mrs. Falconer's character, Miss St. John set her down as a cruel and heartless, as well as a tyrannical and bigoted old woman, 
and took the mental position of enmity towards her. In a gush of motherly indignation, she kissed Robert on the forehead. From that chrism he arose a king. He dried his eyes, not another sob even broke from him. He gave one look, but no word of gratitude to Miss St. John, bade her good-bye, and walked composedly into his grandmother's parlour, where the neck of the violin yet lay upon the fire only half consumed. The rest had vanished utterly. "'What are they doin' doin' at the factory, Granny?' he asked. "'What's what doin', laddie?' returned his grandmother, curtly. "'They're takin' it doin'.' "'Takin' what doin'?' she returned with raised voice. Taken doin' the hoose. The old woman rose. Robert, ye may have spite in your heart for what I have done this morning, but I could do no other, and it's an ill thing to take such amends of me as given I had done wrong by garin' me trow at your grandfather's property was to go on the gate of his old, useless, ill-mannered scratch of a fiddle. She was the bonniest fiddle in the countryside, Granny, and she never gave a scratch in her life except when she was handled in a manner unbecoming. But we say nae more aboot her, for she's gone, and no by a fair death on one's own straw either. She had nae blood to cry for vengeance, but the snapping of her strings and the cracking of her bones may have made a cry to go on far enough notwithstanding. The old woman seemed for one moment rebuked under her grandson's eloquence. He had made a great stride towards manhood since the morning. "'The fiddle's my own,' she said, in a defensive tone, "'and so is the factory,' she added, as if she had not quite reassured herself concerning it. "'The fiddle's yours nae more, Granny, and for the factory you would not believe me. Go on and see yourself.' Therewith Robert retreated to his garret. When he opened the door of it, the first thing he saw was the string of his kite, which, strange to tell, so steady had been the wind, was still up in the air, still tugging at the bedpost. Whether it was from the stinging thought that the true sky soar, the violin, having been devoured by the jaws of the fire-devil, there was no longer any significance in the outward invisible sign of the dragon, or from a dim feeling that the time of kites was gone by and manhood on the threshold, I cannot tell. But he drew his knife from his pocket, and with one downstroke cut the string in twain. Away went the dragon, free like a prodigal, to his ruin, and with the dragon afar into the past flew the childhood of Robert Falconer. He made one remorseless dart after the string as it swept out of the skylight, but it was gone beyond remedy, and never more save in twilight dreams did he lay hold on his childhood again. But he knew better and better as the years rolled on, that he approached a deeper and holier childhood, of which that had been but the feeble and necessarily vanishing type. As the kite sank in the distance, Mrs. Falconer issued from the house and went down the street towards the factory. Before she came back, the cloth was laid for dinner, and Robert and Shargar were both in the parlour awaiting her return. She entered heated and dismayed, went into Robert's bedroom, and shut the door hastily. They heard her open the old bureau. In a moment, after she came out with a more luminous expression upon her face than Robert had ever seen it bear, it was as still as ever, but there was a strange light in her eyes, which was not confined to her eyes, but shone in a measure from her colorless forehead and cheeks as well. It was long before Robert was able to interpret that change in her look and that increase of kindness towards himself and Shargar, 
apparently such a contrast with the holocaust of the morning had they both been benjamins they could not have been more abundant platefuls than she gave them that day and when they left her to return to school instead of the usual no be quiet she said in gentle almost loving tones no be good lads both of ye the conclusion at which falconer did arrive was that his grandmother had hurried home to see whether the title deeds of the factory were still in her possession and had found that they were gone taken doubtless by her son andrew at whatever period he had appropriated them he must have parted with them but recently and the hope rose luminous that her son had not yet passed into the region where all life dies death lives terrible consolation terrible creed which made the hope that he was still on this side of the grave working wickedness light up the face of the mother and open her hand in kindness is it suffering or is it wickedness that is the awful thing ah but they are both combined in the other world and in this world too i answer only according to mrs falconer's creed in the other world god for the sake of the suffering renders the wickedness eternal the old factory was in part pulled down and out of its remains a granary constructed nor did the old lady interpose a word to arrest the alienation of her property End chapter twenty three